0: In fact, the idea for the mass march was devised by just one Palestinian, 34-year-old journalist and poet, Ahmed Abu Artema, as he watched birds flying freely into the land he was forbidden. It all started with a post. What would happen if thousands of Gazans attempted to peacefully cross the fence that separated them from their ancestral lands? I looked at the birds flying at the fences without being held by anyone. Birds decide to fly and fly. I have discovered the real reason for abhorring the occupation. I hate it because it contradicts the laws of nature. It forbids me to be a flying bird. That was a poem by Ahmed Abu Artima, the founder of the Great March of Return
1: protests. Now
0: part of the reason I'm playing this clip to open up the podcast is because of the heart-wrenching and very sad reality of what's going on in Gaza right now. And I played this particular clip from Abby's documentary film Gaza Fights for Freedom, uh, which everybody should watch if they haven't seen it yet. It's, it's on YouTube. It's free. Um, please go watch it if you haven't seen it. But Ahmed Artima's family um, has experienced a great loss during this conflict um he's been sending abby messages directly um and he relayed to her that several members of his own family were killed and that he's badly injured from being near an airstrike or an airstrike i'm not exactly sure the exact specifics so i'm not going to pontificate about that but based on um the information he gave Abby, it sounds very bad and very tragic. And there's just so much crazy rhetoric flying around right now. I mean, I'll just start with probably one of the craziest things that I'm seeing is basically the conflation of any pro-Palestine, you know, Gaza solidarity rally anywhere. You see dozens and dozens of people that are huge figures in politics or in media um, basically conflating it with Hamas uh so, like rallies like pro Hamas rallies that these people there are terrorists or they're terrorist sympathizers at the very least, but we should all actually all look at them because they might actually be real terrorists i mean that's the kind of rhetoric that we really haven't seen a lot of I would say since nine eleven or since like the Bush era of sort of that weird fever pitch chorus of insane rhetoric having to do with it's like the goalposts have moved so now if you're not even if you're anti-Zionist because before remember like those billboards going around by that horrific uh Israeli government-funded lobbying groups stand with us that say, you know, they put up billboards even in Berkeley, California, that say anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That's their that's one of their slogans, and it's been that for a long time. Now, with this new bombardment, attempted genocide on the Palestinian people by the IDF and the Israeli government, the goalposts have now moved. basically the point where simply having solidarity with palestinians right now is anti-semitic that's the that's how crazy the rhetoric has actually become that you can't even show solidarity for palestinians right now without being called anti-semitic and also uh without being called like a terrorist or terrorist sympathizer that went, seemed to go from zero to 10 real fast. You know, and, you know, there were, I'll, I'll say there was a lot of exaggerated or distorted thinking when it came to the Trump era and the way a lot of liberal journalists would talk about fascism. Even some of these, you know, communists or, or self-identified leftist journalists got sort of distorted thinking about the fascism problem in the Trump era. I would say the Trump era, you know, like other analysts have said that I largely agree with, lifted sort of a scab where, yeah, there was like an increase in open displays of fascism among Trump supporters during him. And you could argue maybe a a slight increase in like what people want to call like white supremacist violence. Sure. That, that. I'll I'll agree with that. But the general idea that, you know, all of a sudden Trump came in and all of a sudden there's all these fascists around is, you know, is largely a distortion. And part of the reason I'm saying that is because I was in my early twenties during the Bush era, just coming out of my teenage years. It was some very formative years in my life. And it was also a big reality check and wake up call for me realizing that even though i wasn't even really that politically driven or like even interested in like i was I, i'll admit i was very apolitical um growing up i was very cynical um and and i don't you know i probably even held some political views that maybe i would even find abhorrent now that we're just like not even from you know watching media or anything just like you know political views of like a angry you know teenager so but it wasn't until my early 20s that i actually started to have like a visceral gut level reaction to the overwhelming blatant uh blast of of uh war propaganda coming from TV news coming from the radio coming from every sector of the media i was already kind of you know out of boredom listening to talk radio sometimes on an am radio by that point and you know a lot of shows that i would listen to were not political at all they were just like really time waster like talk show kind of shows um i listened to a radio station called kgo that had a lot of like local ABC affiliate, you know, just like really boring talk show shit. You know, like drive time radio stuff. And all of a sudden, all those shows started to say things that I was like, "Wow, I guess I really underestimated like the ugliness of people all around me, and like not even just around me in my social circles and in my personal life, but like in the world that large, getting activated into this reptile brain." fearmongery sort of animalistic mentality where and I say animalistic I'm not saying these people are animals because I'm going to touch on that later but this sort of bloodthirst mentality where it it just first of all I was already out of step with the rush to go to the Afghanistan war like really early on. I mean, I wasn't, I was never at any point for the Afghanistan war. I thought it was like really horrific that even if I bought into the idea that bin Laden was behind the 9-11 attacks, it didn't make any sense to topple an entire government and do regime change just to get bin Laden. It seemed like a, it just seemed like a horrific, amoral thing to do at the time. But by the time the Iraq War came around, I think is, that's when I really, really noticed, or it started to really fully soak into my brain that I am not, you know, trying to toot my own horn and say that I was some kind of moral arbiter, and I had, you know, some kind of, you know, internal morality that that led me to being this to like a good person. Or I'm not trying to say anything like that. I'm just trying to say that something clicked in me early on, without even really reading much politics, without being politically educated hardly at all, that something was really, really wrong on a gut level that I will not tolerate as a person just to be like a slave to this. Well, first of all, a slave to like media propaganda, buying into it. I was already, you know, trying to do research online and trying to find alternative narratives to us in the media by that point. You know, fortunately it led me to places sometimes like Alex Jones early on in the quest for that. But in general, the, you know, I, I think on a gut level, it's healthy to have that kind of skepticism.
1: Now. But basically, back to my
0: point, that was an extremely long tangent, (laughs) is that we are now in a way sort of returning back to that era. And that era already, I think, during the Bush era, seemed to flip some kind of switch in the American public to activate a, a, a form of fascist mentality in not... Just people who are already right leaning, or people who are racist, or you know, white power people. I'm talking about like people of a certain age group demographic. A lot of liberals, especially, got sucked into it. I remember arguing with a lot of liberals before it was, you know, before John Kerry uh, ran against the Iraq War, you know, barely ran against the Iraq War. But when he did in 2004, that's when by the time a lot of liberals started to openly criticize it. But there was a good year or two where you would it would be hard to find any liberal you know democrat especially who was not just completely on board with the bush administration it was a horrifying thing to witness where it's like it was just i i I felt like i was in the twilight zone if i if that's one way i can explain it is i really did feel like i was so out of step uh with things that it was a, it, it, it kind of broke me mentally in a way and separated me forever from sort of that, I guess, that mentality. Um, but I think, just summing up my point, the Trump era is not what brought fascism to the forefront. That fascism, I think, was very easy to see for certain people. I'm not unique in this. I'm not saying I'm unique. In fact, I'm saying I was uneducated politically and originally got into this on a gut level reaction. But a lot of other people who were very educated were basically coming to the same conclusions that I was based on you know their experience in politics, people who are much older than me, you know, like William Bloom, um, R.I.P., or authors like that.
1: But. Barbara, stay. Now, this is
0: not going to come as a shock to anybody of who I'm going to sort of just call out here for being who I, you know, what I think is just like blatant, Bush era fascism you know and this is something that maybe people some people who have a different interpretation of neocon than i do might disagree with but i think that it's a you know neoconservatism in and of itself i think is an embodiment of a sort of a fascist frame you know spreading democracy across the world i mean you could see that as sort of a imperialistic sort of fascist expansionist ambition. But even more than that, I think to create, to manufacture consent for these kind of atrocities that the U.S. government commits and that helps Israel commit by funding it is basically to dehumanize people and to activate and exacerbate and sort of inflame fascist tendencies on sort of a domestic and social level. And that's how you get things like the stabbing and murder of that Palestinian little boy um, and situations like that. So there's two sides to it. Um, That's why I'm sick of arguing with people who weren't able to admit for the last several years that manufacturing all this consent you know, on a domestic level, all this propaganda against China, you know, even though we're maybe not actively right on the chicken switch, ready to go to actual war with China, not yet, you know, even though in a lot of ways, there's been a lot of escalations, that's still one side of the whole sort of neoconservative or U.S. imperialistic media apparatus uh, strategy is to do both, to sort of inflame the domestic population to manufacture consent for these things and to help create you know like in operation Northwoods, it says the deaths of these like imaginary people are going to kill on this remote-controlled plane will create a wave of necessary indignation outrage you know agitprop uh, propaganda designed to very much upset people now The people who play in that propaganda world um, have always been, you know, some of the most evil neocon operators you can imagine. Um, You know, and actually, I'm not even going to give too much attention to what these people say, but if you want to see two particularly egregious and horrific examples of what I'm talking about, two people who basically embodied the MAGA era of politics, go look at things that Laura Loomer is saying on Twitter. And also go look at things that Charlie Kirk is saying on Twitter, the, the guy who's like the head of Talking Point USA or whatever the fuck it's called, Turning Point USA. <laughs> Extremely identical rhetoric about Islam, about Muslims, jihadists, dehumanizing Arabs. That was basically the, the, some of the consent that needed to be manufactured for the war on terror and the war in Iraq and all that stuff. Now, there's, I would say in a weird way, Israel is sort of, at least after 9-11, um, there is some truth in the fact that people like Ehud Barak and others said that this is the U.S.'s war on terror now. The U.S. is, li- is going to be like us. Well, I say there's some truth to that because it does appear that the U.S. at least modeled the entire war on terror model. As an endless excuse for endless warfare and assassinations worldwide, after Israel's war on terror, the way that the Mossad conducts assassinations—they can—they even do kidnappings outside of the bounds of their international borders. Um, you know, to hunt down uh, certain terrorists. Um, you know, most famously Nazis that escaped um, to like South America and things like that. But they've done it also for like you know, Arab terrorist groups, uh, the, what was that Spielberg movie, you know, about the Munich black September, um, you know, Mossad, uh, assassinations and things like that. So there is a sort of a weird sister, you know, like Israel's our sister country in this regard that they have sort of taught us or we've taken license from them because they get away with it and why, well, if they do it, why can't we do it to basically use terrorism as an endless, excuse to murder large numbers of people. And in Israel's case, there's a little bit more of a disturbing agenda behind it where there's open, there's such blatant open dehumanization taking place from their leadership Repeatedly calling, you know, not just Hamas animals, but like trying to lump them all together, like all Palestinians are animals. I mean, open talk like that. But in the, but I think that that, whatever that mentality was that fueled all that. Hatred and xenophobia after 9 11, there's a spiritual link there between us and Israel. It's, and it is almost like we adopted Israeli Hasbro model somewhat for the propaganda that they, that Israel uses to basically dehumanize Palestinians. And I was personally front and center in one of those events, which was very surreal for me. It was kind of when I was already starting to become aware of all the media lies right in the middle of all that. Um, my roommate and I at the time and my now wife, Lori, uh, all filmed a fake beheading video where I made my roommate appear to be a hostage taken in Iraq, getting beheaded. We uploaded this video online. Um, we uploaded it to like file sharing networks and labeled it American hostage beheaded in Iraq. And that's all we did. And it wasn't a very good video. I didn't think it was particularly convincing. Um, It was a pretty fucked up kind of prank we did, but we were also curious. We both on a gut level felt, well, wouldn't it be crazy if the media actually fell for this because of all the war on terror hysteria right now? you know, what would that mean if they did? And, you know, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but we never actually expected it to happen. We were very doubtful that that was going to happen. And it did. Three months later, it got picked up by the international media and was actually reported as a real American hostage beheaded and killed by al-Qaeda terrorists in Iraq in the AP, So first of all, you have to think about it from the level of most people only see the first headlines and never see the retraction, right? So there's probably a lot of people going around right now who were around during that time, who were reading news at that time, who probably think, oh yeah, an American, wasn't an American hostage, like an American soldier hostage beheaded on video in Iraq? Like I remember when that happened. So that's like one level of it where it's like, oh shit, like they, they put out a newspaper article, like not just newspaper article, I'm talking about like thousands of newspapers across the world reported this because it came from the AP, because of this fake video that we did. Um, It's a crazy story. It's still hard to believe that it happened. I got visited by the FBI after it happened and they told me what I did wasn't illegal. But then in the news, it continued to say, like the AP continued to put out stories, you know, after they issued the retraction of it, saying that what we did was illegal and that we're maybe gonna go to jail for it and all the shit. So several several layers of a propaganda sandwich to unpack just in that event that I was sort of involved in. But the point of bringing that up is that is that was when I first started to really, really realize. How powerful this sort of dehumanization, manufacturing consent for war was by doing simple things like making it seem like our enemies, aka the terrorists, aka basically Iraqis at the time, were animals and they were below us. We were civilized humans. We engage in, I don't know, I guess, using to the according to the rules of war, you know, which we don't, but even still the concept was that only these animals, these barbaric animals behead people. Look what they did to Nick Berg. And I remember even listening to one of those daytime talk shows that just started going off one day. The guy was like, you know what? I don't really comment too much on this. And you know, I'm, I'm part of me is really against the Iraq war. I don't think we should be there, but you know, these people chop people's heads off. Do you hear me? That They chop people's heads off. We don't do that. We don't do that in this country. Yeah, we kill civilians sometimes, but that's war. But we don't chop people's heads off. These people chop people's heads off. Now, I remember hearing that rant and thinking, my God, this is like, this." so this guy was basically just holding back his racism the whole time. And then, I, and then it dawned on me, wait a second. No, this is like, it, like it's working on a lot of people. A lot of people. They bought, they bought into this. The Nick Berg video flipped a ton of people who were already starting to think the Iraq war was bad, who were already starting to talk a little bit about all the civilian casualties, to being like, oh, wait a second. No, 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 no. This is like evil, barbaric animals we're fighting. And I think genuinely, I mean, let's let's just put it out there. The Nick Berg beheading is a very odd story. It doesn't fully add up. It just doesn't. Even his dad uh, never really got the full story of what happened there. They say he was beheaded by like a faction of the Iraqi insurgency that affiliated themselves with Al-Qaeda. But I frankly don't think there's any proof for that. And we know that the military covered up a lot of deaths and not just Iraq, but also Afghanistan, of, um, of their own employees and soldiers. He was a contractor when he got beheaded. Um, that was part of the reason we made our video, is because the video that got released of him being beheaded was extremely low quality, to the point where it wasn't the video itself that created the propaganda wave, it was more the outrage of the media sensationalism and headlines about it. And then, of course, that fed directly into that neocon right wing engine of these people chop people's heads off. They're not, they don't behave like us. They're animals. Now, of course, this goes directly into the Israel discussion, but I think it was good to bring up the Iraq war a little bit in this discussion to begin with, because again, there are some strange parallels between the brazen nature of how Israel doesn't just obliterate civilians and, and kill children blatantly, but killing journalists on such a regular basis that with, with impunity, I mean, only in very rare instances has anyone in the Israeli military gotten actually like charged for doing this. And I remember during the Iraq war, that was probably one of the craziest things to me. It's crazy enough that we're murdering so many civilians. And doing all these horrible things to terrorize civilians in Iraq, but then on top of that, the u S army is straight up like shelling all these journalists, and, and several uh, journalists got killed by uS army like ammunition. I mean, it's pretty wild, and the pattern of it, it seems like it was done intentionally, kind of like at a certain point with Israel. It's not conspiratorial in the least to openly ask any time a journalist dies in Israel, were they killed by the IDF? First question. And second question, were they killed on purpose by the IDF? Can you prove that they weren't killed on purpose? Because you know that the IDF, if they find that you know the ballistics or whatever came from an IDF uh, gun or a position where an IDF soldier was, and they could prove it was IDF, they're just going to say they died in the crossfire or it was an accident. So they say either one that, oh, these journalists died because we were during a firefight, or they say that we didn't realize they were a journalist. We thought they were possibly a terrorist. Um, And that happened several times in Iraq too, where journalists were killed because US soldiers basically had the same fucking hair trigger Mossad style, not Mossad style indoctrination, but like IDF style indoctrination about, you know, suicide bombers. Now think about this. Were U S soldiers ever like trained in dealing with things like suicide bombers? And while, yeah, there were a lot of suicide bombers in Iraq, but most of them were like grown men or male, you know, military age males who, were killing themselves in car bombs as like you know like a like basically like a kamikaze thing to like hurt u.s soldiers the idea that a suicide bomber is like the al-qaeda sends out a little child with a bomb strapped to her pretending to you know want candy from a soldier is is like a movie myth and it's basically like a neocon myth now (laughs) so i mean think about that for a second that all those myths and things that were sort of indoctrinated, even in like the U.S. soldiers, things to be worried about in these situations like in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of that comes from like Israeli indoctrination, Israeli military indoctrination. And also the, how they indoctrinate their own society in Israel to make them th- seem like you know, they're under threat from terrorism 24-7. And they're these brave people because they're constantly being attacked by terrorists. Um, so there's so many layers to this, but I'm going to talk mostly on this episode. You know, other than the fact, it, it is horrific that the official death toll in Gaza right now is 8,000. Now, the Gaza Ministry of Health has released figures that show. Um, like that, have names for almost 7,000 people on there. They've released documents actually detailing all the information about each person killed, in part because there's been like an unprecedented amount of pushback from all these sketchy media outlets and figures and politicians, including the president himself. Joe Biden basically said, and he echoed what John Kirby said, which was horrific. John Kirby said that the Gaza Ministry of Health is basically a front for Hamas. So we can't trust their numbers. And Biden, you know, made some talking out both sides of his mouth, bullshit comments, saying something like, Well, yeah, all civilians killed, you know, in Palestine, it's a it's a it's a tragedy, but at the same time, we can't trust those numbers. Like, I'm sure there are civilian casualties, but we don't, we just don't know. Those numbers, we can't take them at all seriously. So the Gaza Ministry of Health actually released a long document listing on all the names uh, and people are still pushing back on this. Now it was interesting going into a Time magazine article about called the Gaza death toll explainer and about half of the article spends time making its you know quoting all these different figures including Biden and John Kirby of why there's people who are skeptical of the death toll. But I was actually surprised by the end of this Time magazine article, it seems to have given a pro-Palestinian person um, like the last word. And I'm just going to read to you that last word uh, because I think it makes a good point. So Mohammed Shahada, a native Gazan and the chief of communications at Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor, tells Time that of all the Israeli military operations he and his family have lived through, nothing matches the magnitude, severity, and scale of this current war. His fear, shared by his organization, which says it's working to cross-reference the death toll figures with local hospitals, confirmed casualties and eyewitness accounts, and others, is that the more doubt that is cast on the Palestinian death toll, the more likely the airstrikes will continue unabated right now you have 7,000 people killed. And this, is, this came out um, you know, before the death toll reached 8,000, which is way more than the number of Palestinians killed in any previous war, atrocity, or escalation for the last four decades, Shahada says. To question the validity of the numbers coming out from Gaza is to provide cover for everything that Israel will do next. So, there's so many levels of propaganda in Hasbro happening right now. And I think it, that's another and in, very insidious and disturbing uh, Hasbro attempt or way to manipulate the dialogue to make it seem like, oh, these numbers are so in question, we can't trust them at all. And the Time Magazine article um, goes on to say, or it says before this part, I'm not going to pull it up right now. I'm just going to paraphrase what it said. Um, it makes a point in the article to say, in no previous time, uh, even though Hamas was elected, and I think they said 2007, I can't remember the exact date Hamas was elected, but the their point they're making in the article is, even after Hamas was elected, it is, very, it is completely unprecedented for this many figures to be coming out questioning the Gaza Ministry of Health death toll numbers. There has never been this much of an outcry against their numbers before, even though there's been plenty of horrific assaults and atrocities committed by Israel and Gaza since Hamas was elected. And the Gaza Ministry of Health released their numbers then and even though there were probably some ultra-Zionists and you know, Hasbroists that, w- that denied those numbers, the media would largely report them as fact. Those are the verified numbers by the Gaza Ministry of Health. And they didn't not report them because Hamas was the elected government in uh, Gaza. But what you're seeing now in the Time Magazine article points that distinction out. They say, yeah, Hamas has been in power for a while and yet this is the first time there's ever been this much doubt and dispute about the numbers. Now, they don't go on to to write any opinion about why that is, but it's obvious why that is. Because just like what this guy says here, the more people are aware of and the more people take seriously a rising death toll that goes like, you know, goes beyond 10,000. I mean, that's bad enough, Seven, 8,000 people is horrible enough, but the more this death toll goes up, if it hits 20,000 and the media largely accepts that, Israel's just not going to be able to do what it's probably planning on doing, which is just full-on destruction of the Palestinian people, genocide. So that's a really important factor here. They're, they're basically trying to cover all bases, They've been trying to throw everything in the kitchen sink into the mix, basically making it seem like Hamas is cooking babies in the oven because they're Nazis who are, you know, like burning Jews in an oven. There's no evidence that that's happened. That was reported by some like IDF commander who it was never verified. There was this story about how people were gang raped, uh, never verified. Um, there's not even a verified story about a rape. Now, were there any beheadings? Maybe. I don't know if there were any beheadings. Again, we haven't seen any evidence of it, but they're claiming, the IDF is claiming they found a skull fragment from the one of the people at the music festival. And they claim they did DNA testing to determine it was her and that she was beheaded. Now, first of all, it's pretty bizarre to watch the way the media is even just reporting on this because even the New York post said beheaded in quotes. Now, why do they put it in quotes? Well, because the IDF is saying something that doesn't even make sense on its face. How do you, first of all, how do you know she was beheaded? There's nothing they said about that. They didn't say we can see the serration marks. We can see a clean cut, you know, where her vertebrae was or, on her on her neck and they're saying they found a skull fragment which to me sounds like some somehow she got burned her body couldn't have decomposed that fast it's only been what three weeks to to just find a straight-up skull um that wouldn't make sense so what do they mean well to me it seems like the most likely thing is they found a skull fragment If they found, let's just assume they actually found one in some bombed rubble somewhere. And that's, and it's just weird that the, the way this story is circulating, there is no evidence even presented that she was beheaded. It's just like, they just want us to buy it automatically on its face. So let's say that it's tragic enough, right? They want to, they want to tug on our heartstrings and say, this person, this innocent person who was at this concert got killed by Hamas okay I mean isn't that bad enough if that's like let's say that is actually the truth couldn't they just say that and just keep being like say her name you know remember her whatever instead they have to just go this extra mile and make this shit up completely I don't buy it for a fucking second I don't buy the babies being beheaded story at all I think that that's obviously a lie um and it's 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 just fascinating the way that how quickly this stuff spreads and you know you've seen all this talk all these um open source intelligence belling cat all these like fucking nerdy guys who are basically like revolving door spooks who are online you know some of these disinformation watchers i i follow a handful of them online and they're really trying to both side shit in a very like stupid way. Some, I mean, especially the ones who are actively engaging in it. A lot of them are just like ignoring this conflict, interestingly, but where are all those people when it comes to like, Hey, this is, this is getting a lot of traction in the media. Is this true? Because the only reporting in it is from an IDF spokesperson in terms of like verification that this happened. And you n- you don't see any of these fucking people doing any sort of analysis on it at all. You know, it's not surprising that like the Atlantic Council's digital forensics lab wouldn't be doing it. I mean, you know, they they have probably a lot of Zionists in their organization, and they probably have an agenda that's basically pro-Zionists. They're a war mongering think tank. But in general, even these individual reporters and people who claim to be, you know sort of forensic investigators who go online to verify stuff. They're doing a piss poor job of engaging with this. And I think that that really shows their true colors, you know, like the amount of effort these people spent on trying to like debunk, you know, what they called Russian propaganda continuously. Where is the effort spent on something that's just such a blatant, obvious lie on behalf of the Israeli government? How do you not sniff this out? I, I guess the part of the, the, the my thinking is that these people must have some kind of fascist bone in their body, some inclination to just believe well yeah they are Muslim Muslims and they do terrorism and yeah Muslims are like barbaric and like behead babies and stuff like maybe they wouldn't say that openly, but I feel like there's a part of them that thinks that. You know, and I think a lot of people, frankly, have been indoctrinated into just because we're ignorant as a society on Islam. It's very easy to fill that void with complete trash propaganda. I mean, go read some of Charlie Kirk's tweets. I'm not going to read his tweet. He's writing these very long tweets that just seem like Frank Gaffney, PNAC era, Islamophobic propaganda designed to make Arabs and Muslims seem like you know, just barbaric, sick people, and also to go after Islam as a whole, you know, and you'll see, like Charlie Kirk's point of view is that, oh, um, you know, you might have some good, you know, he goes on for like three paragraphs talking about how brutal and barbaric, you know, these Islamic terrorists are, and then he's like, well, you know, in fairness, you might have some like Muslim doctors or neighbors who are like good people, and like they seem nice, and they seem like like moral people, but they're not actually following the tenets of Islam. They're not true Muslims. A true Muslim is like an animal, like a barbaric. An- I mean, he doesn't say that literally, but it, it, when you read it, the rest of what he's saying, that's basically how the only way to interpret it. Which is a completely absurd argument. It's like saying, you know, what is that? How do you apply that to other religions? So. What if you follow the Torah and the, you know, the Old Testament or the New Testament, like exactly literally, what is a true Christian? You know, how do you be like, it, there's a lot of branches of Islam that have different interpretations of, of uh, the Quran. So it just, it's this cartoonish point of view, which implies that the more devout of a Muslim you are, the more likely you are to be like a Jew-hating psychopath who beheads people. I mean, that is basically the line of thinking that they've been trying to indoctrinate you with ever since the Bush era, here in the United States, over there in the UK, up in Canada, especially in France, which France is fucking out of control, Islamophobic fucking paranoid bitches over there, over Muslims. Fuck you guys. So, I mean, I'm not saying the U.S. is any better than France. Not at all. I mean, we're way worse. But it's like their racism towards Muslims is like even more brazen than ours in certain ways. But I think all this sort of stuff goes hand in hand. It's all used to manufacture consent for war. And, you know, manufacturing consent for war only goes so far. Another side of it is you basically need to cover up war crimes, hide them, or be really clever about how you do them so you're not caught doing them. And who typically catches or gets wind of war crimes? Well, I would say the only two type of people who get attention in the press for are like international rights observers, human rights workers, you know, but they can't be Palestinian or, um, or or work for any sort of branch of the the Palestinian Authority because if they do, then they're basically Hamas, right? That's the that's the line that you keep hearing. That's just what you know, like the Gaza Health Ministry can't be trusted because it's a front for Hamas. So. So that presents another problem. How do you hide all these things? How do you just keep murdering, you know, tens of thousands of civilians with impunity? Well, I'll explain a little bit to you how they did it in Iraq and also how they are doing it now in Israel and how they've done it for the last 30 years in Israel. And this is where the sort of sister country you know, framing comes in again, where there were a lot of journalists killed in the Iraq war. Most of them were um, Arab or Middle Eastern journalists. The percentage of Arab or Middle Eastern journalists killed by U.S. forces far outweighs any white people or European journalists killed by U.S. forces. I think that the only times where that happened, um, there's not enough there to say that the U.S. forces probably deliberately killed them. Um, there are so many deaths and and murders uh, by U.S. forces of different journalists of different Middle Eastern backgrounds that you really do have to just ask the question just based on the amount of it, of were they targeted deliberately? And why was, how did Al Jazeera specifically lose so many people? Well, the other, you know, the counter narrative to that, that the right wing neocon war machine tried to put out was that Al Jazeera was actually a front for Al Qaeda, that they were somehow secretly tr- even transmitting messages from Al Qaeda through their little caption at the bottom, like in uh, code. I think even the CIA paid someone to, uh, to interpret those for them, which was a complete hoax that that wasn't happening. So two different organizations. One of them is an official UN organization uh, called UNESCO. Since Since, 20, since 2002, 21 professional or citizen journalists have died in Israel. Now, they don't say killed by IDF because a small fraction of those were not killed by IDF. One of them was killed by some weird... Um, uh, Sunni offshoot group in Gaza territory, which kidnapped an actual like Palestinian solidarity activist who was trying to help protect Palestinians. They kidnapped him and killed him. And then later Hamas actually like tried to hunt down and find who did it. So there's been some you know, small instances of that happening, but the overwhelming majority of these journalists were killed by the IDF. Another organization, the Committee to Protect Journalists, um, says that 25 journalists have been killed in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory since 1992. 25. It's only 2023 now. 25 journalists in the last 30 years or so. Almost, well, a little over 30 years. That's almost at a rate of one journalist murdered by the IDF every year. We've already had several journalists killed in this conflict, and I don't have enough information to report on that properly now, but I'm going to take you through the history of the shocking pattern of just how many Journalists and activists, Western, people from Western countries, white kids, young, young people have been killed by the IDF, and also Middle Eastern journalists. Murdered with impunity by the IDF. Now, I think most people started to become aware of this maybe slowly because I don't remember hearing about it at the time um, until I became more politically active, you know, and of course the Iraq war and and the war on terror was in full swing during this time, which is also interesting timing because to me, it also implies the IDF was probably feeling more empowered and brazen. You know, here was our sister nation, the U S fighting a war on terror alongside with us. Um, If you're not familiar uh, with her, uh, Rachel Corey was an American activist. Um, she went to Israel and stayed with some Palestinian families um, as like a human rights activist. And she later decided to become a human shield to prevent a Palestinian's home from being demolished by the IDF. Now, what happened to Rachel Corey? If you're not familiar with her, it's a horrific story. Um, She was essentially trying to block this demolition by wearing a very bright yellow neon vest, um, calling attention to herself, Uh, It was very obvious that she was there and seemingly completely intentionally and with, with just total impunity, IDF soldiers driving this tractor ran her over and crushed her. And they didn't just run over her once, they backed back over her and she died. Uh, the IDF crushed an American activist to death with a tractor. So if you already see these Israeli soldiers as ranking people, you know, or like they see Arabs or Palestinians as like the lowest scum of the earth, what does this say that they would just with impunity be able to run over a white young woman activist uh, who was, basically doing civil disobedience and kill her with a tractor. I mean, I think it says that they're pretty fucking determined to just do whatever the fuck they want because they know they can get away with it. And. Now. There was no official inquest into it at first. Uh, her family was horrified by the lack of response or interest by the Israeli government to investigate it. So they sued them and they got all these journalists and people, activists to put a bunch of pressure on the Israeli government. And they also got people in the U S government interested in getting some kind of resolution for this. Um, Apparently Lawrence Wilkerson uh, was one of these people um, via Colin Powell's office who helped Corey's parents get uh, some kind of, I don't know what exactly he helped them do, but apparently he was very involved for a second in helping them. Um, I have my own problems with Lawrence Wilkerson, which I'm going to go into in a little Anthrax anniversary special that we're putting out a little later. Um, but what happened was the Israeli government said they were going to do an inquiry, an investigation. Uh, and they conducted an investigation that was obviously a cover-up. It was incredibly biased. Um, it claimed that they could not see her. They didn't know she was there. And they didn't realize after they ran over her once that they basically already killed her. And that's why they ran over her again. They were The IDF soldiers that were fingered as being the people who were operating the vehicle were questioned and were completely exonerated no penalties whatsoever. And because the Israeli government and the IDF um, has this rule basically baked in that if there's any active combat situation, any hostile fire or combat, as they say, um, these soldiers would have been immune to prosecution anyways, because it just would have been like, oh, he died during the war. We're fighting Palestine, You know, we're fighting terrorists out here. You got hit by a tractor. Oopsie. So, even any of this, even if the soldier said, "We thought she was a terrorist and we ran her over," that probably wouldn't have flown as well in a, in a quote-unquote normal situation. But they could always use this blanket excuse that there was active combat, which would mean they'd get off anyways. And to add insult to injury, in the official inquest, it deemed Rachel Corey irresponsible and reckless. They actually used those words in it. And they basically imply that she was putting herself in danger, not because the IDF or crazed killers who run over an American activist with a tractor, but because the Palestinian family she was staying with were potential terrorist sympathizers. That's 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 how sick the Israeli government is, and really nothing happened from it except um, the UN got involved, and they did um, they did their own investigation, and their investigation basically did not definitively conclude that the IDF ran over her on purpose. But I think it's one of those things where the situation just seems so hard to believe that, that excuse, that official story on its face. How did they not know she was there? They have intelligence. Did they not know there was like an activist even staying in the area? I mean, the whole thing is impossible to believe from top to bottom. And that's part of why her family has pressed so hard because they've always believed that it was intentional. And it was, and it's probably also, you know, well, I don't think we'll ever know the real story of, did they get orders to do this? Um, was it meant to send a message to the rest of the activists in the world who want to do humanitarian things to, in you know, actually going to Gaza themselves? I think that all those questions are valid because you kill someone this brazenly, who's an activist, it definitely is going to scare other people um, into, you know, away from doing civil disobedience. There hasn't been uh, a whole lot of that since Rachel Corey. Who knows? Maybe there would have been a lot more human chains or, you know, physical acts of civil disobedience where people chain themselves to different things that are going to be demolished. Settlers trying to come in—you never know. So I think that it's very possible that this actually sent a chilling effect to the world community at large who wanted to actually put themselves on the ground in Gaza or in Palestinian occupied territory to do humanitarian work. Because it basically sends the message that nobody's safe. We'll, We'll just straight up run the fuck over an American activist who's a woman. Now, Human Rights Watch, um, you know, they called out Israel, saying it was a dangerous ruling. uh, There's no that that it's a tragedy that there's no liability for her death. Um, But the actual conclusion of it does not say anything to really, you know, imply that these soldiers or that this was intentional. And you know, Human Rights Watch is classically seems to be, in a lot of instances, be pro-regime change. So it's not a surprise that they would not take a strong position on it. Um, and unfortunately, there was never like a true independent investigation that had full access to everything. That happened in um, 2003, by the way. Now, in one rare instance, uh, the death of this activist slash journalist, um, there was some accountability for this, uh, and this happened also in 2003, or sorry, he died in 2004, uh, right at the beginning of 2004, January 13th, um, uh, he was a British photography student, so he wasn't a journalist per se, um, He was a volunteer for the ISM, the International Solidarity Movement, and he was openly an activist against uh, Israeli occupation. Now, this is is pretty disturbing because it's really hard to believe that this would have been not intentional. You know, on April 11th, 2003, oh, I'm sorry. So he actually did get shot. nine months earlier he didn't die until being in a coma until 2004 so technically this is closer you know pretty close to the time rachel cory got killed he was shot in the head in the gaza strip by an idf sniper and Herndol was left in a coma as a result and died nine months later in a hospital Now this is, the, uh, this is what Wikipedia says and of course Wikipedia is obviously biased in some grotesque direction sometimes but it's useful because it says that according to the IDF an Israeli checkpoint came under fire from Palestinian militants and the soldiers at the checkpoint returned fire. Herndl's group of nine activists abandoned their protest to seek cover. Herndl then ran out into the street and was shot in the head by an IDF soldier. Now this is according to Other people in the International Solidarity Movement were there with him, and Palestinians who witnessed it said that Herndl had been seen had seen a group of children playing and had noticed that bullets were hitting the ground between them. Several children had run away, but some were paralyzed with fear, and Herndl went to help them. Herndl's father told the inquest. Tom went to take one girl out of the line of fire, which he did successfully, but when he went back and he knelt down to collect another, he was shot. Now, of course, the IDF initially said that Herndel was uh, accidentally shot on the crossfire. Now, the witnesses actually even went further, and this happened in the Palestinian town of Rafa, and said that he had actually been hit by a rifle bullet while trying to shield the children. So that makes it even more dark. Like if he was intent, I mean, first of all, it's a sniper. So how could, you, how could that be a crossfire? Somebody directly took him out. And again, you lay out enough details here and you're like, did they punish this activist for trying to save kids? I mean, that's, that's pretty fucking insane. Maybe they wanted to get rid of the witnesses. You know, a witness who'd be more believed than a Palestinian citizen, a, um, a British um, ISM. Now, the sniper uh, was actually put on trial and he was given manslaughter charges. Now, this is interesting details is that the sniper, Taisir Haib, claimed he had shot at a man in military fatigues, although photographic evidence clearly showed Herndl was wearing a bright orange jacket, denoting he was a foreigner. Haib was an award-winning marksman and his rifle had a telescopic sight. He claimed to have aimed four inches from Herndl's head, but he moved. Hayeb said a policy of shooting at unarmed civilians existed at the time. So his initial testimony implied that he was doing a warning shot F- aimed four inches from your head. That's a pretty. So, how expert of a marksman was he? He di- was he? And why would you be trying to get that close to someone's head, anyways, as a warning shot? That is fucking nuts. There it is. Hayeb admitted that a policy of shooting at unarmed civilians existed at the time. Now, there are two different versions of that story in there, in, in case I read it a little too fast to make that clear. First, he said that he thought he was shooting at a Palestinian militant wearing fatigues. And then he later changed his story to say that he was basically trying to shoot a warning shot at him because he knew he was a civilian. So which one of those stories is true? I would say neither of them are true. But the first one is probably more true, meaning that he intentionally snuffed this guy out. He, mur- he wanted to murder him. You know, whether, you know, I don't buy the idea that he thought he was a Palestinian militant. The guy was wearing an orange vest. So, again, is this another example of a, an IDF soldier or maybe even the soldier getting orders that we'll never know about to just directly murder an activist, to punish them? I think it's very possible. Although although this resulted in some punishment, manslaughter, it did not result in as nearly as much like international indignation and outrage as the Rachel Corey case did, which in a way is unfortunate because it happened in the same year. Now, there was yet another uh, journalist, a, a filmmaker named James Miller, um, who was actually murdered by the IDF. The British government, because he was a British citizen, he was Welsh, did their own inquest into the killing, and they they found that it was an unlawful killing, that it that he had been murdered, and that the bullets were consistent with those used by the IDF. According to Wikipedia, it says the Israeli military police conducted an investigation into Miller's death, closed on March 9, 2005, with an announcement that the soldier, who they did not name, which is interesting, suspected of firing the shot would not be indicted as they could not establish that his shot was responsible, though he would be disciplined for violating the rules of engagement and for changing his account of the incident. So again, it sounds like a little slap on the wrist, but they didn't even seem to name who he was. So eventually they did put him through a formal trial and just acquitted him on everything. But of course, when the British government sent their request for a follow-up to the Israeli government, they completely ignored it. Even though this was like an official British government inquest of their own. The Israeli government just like, fuck you guys. I don't give a shit. Our people can fucking just murder your fucking journalists. Like, what, like it doesn't matter, dude. We're going to continue doing it. And they did. He was killed May 2nd, 2003- a uh, gunshot wound is what killed him. Now, there was actually a documentary made about his death called Death in Gaza that was made. I think it's. I don't think it was made by him. It, might, it probably has footage by him, um, but it basically depicts a situation where he's leaving a Palestinian family um, in the Rafah refugee camp after dark, carrying a white flag towards two IDF armored personnel carriers, manned by nine soldiers. They had walked about 20 meters from the veranda when the first shot rang out. For 13 seconds, there was silence broke only by Shaw's cry. We are British journalists, he said. Then came the second shot, which killed Miller. He was shot in the front of his neck. According to witnesses, there was no crossfire and none can be heard on the APTN tape. I mean, again, it's just like, Maybe, maybe these IDF soldiers are on just such a hair trigger that, you know, they'll shoot anyone, you know, they're just, they're just red trigger happy. But again, it does seem odd. It it just, to me, it seems odd because it's like, it o- it almost seems like maybe bare minimum that the IDF basically is told internally, you know, maybe when you reach a certain level of the IDF, like beyond the compulsory military service, like, you know a lot of journalists here like you know do really reckless things and they and they even hang out with Hamas and go into these dangerous areas in Palestine so if you accidentally kill one we you know it's not going to be that big of a deal i i guarantee you there is some internal messaging like that because what is what does history show it shows that it's not a big deal and then almost nothing ever happens to people when they kill journalists there, now I'm definitely not going to have time to cover all journalists that have been uh, murdered by the IDF in uh, in Palestinian territories, because, like I said, there's you know there's at least twenty that were murdered by the IDF. Now I'm being conservative there. I don't know the exact breakdown. I know that some of those people in that 25 number were not killed by the ADF but the overwhelming majority were so the next one I'm going to go into is a Reuters journalist a cameraman named Fidel Shana and uh, now Fidel Shana was only 24 years old and he was killed by several darts known as flechettes which burst from a shell fired by an Israeli tank on April 16th at about 5 30 p.m. The tank firing and shell bursting were the final images on tape before Shauna's camera was destroyed. Now you can actually find the video of this and it's pretty fucking weird because everybody, when you're a journalist in in Gaza and you know the IDF is there on a hair trigger, you have blatant signs all over your vehicles, all over you, that says press, usually denoted by a blue sometimes a helmet or a, or a bright blue vest that says press on it, right? Now, eight other civilians in this same tank shelling were aged between 12 and 20, six of them under uh, age 16. Eight, of eight people died within that age range. Shauna and Abu Mazied were wearing blue body armor marked press. These were two different Reuters employees. One of them did not die. Uh, but she got injured and stood next to a car bearing TV and press signs in the middle of a country road, some 100 meters Southeast of Gaza's main highway. So first of all, you have to think, okay, this is not like in a completely desolate out in the middle of nowhere area in Gaza where IDF soldiers might be super scared. This is like very populated area. Two Merkava four main battle tanks stood on a ridge about 1.5 kilometers to the southeast, facing northwest. In the preceding half hour, the Reuters crew had driven past a point 700 meters from the tanks. And this is the key tidbit, I think. you know, And sometimes you have to wonder if some of these people working for these establishment outlets are playing a double game here, where if they want to drop clues and hints about what they really think, versus what they're willing to say. Because as we know, Reuters went full cuck mode during, You know, when the collateral murder thing came out, which showed two of their cameramen being murdered by US forces in Iraq. They did it again when, when Israel murdered another one of their journalists later in, in Gaza. But here it's interesting because they're not really... This is not an opinion piece. It's just sort of one of those like dry fact pieces. But the way that the facts are presented here make it very, very clear that this is some really shady shit. Now, here's the key tidbit, I think, from this article. In the preceding half hour, the Reuters crew had driven past a point 700 meters from the tanks, filmed the aftermath of an Israeli airstrike that killed several children and returned by the same route. Shauna stopped, set up his tripod, and filmed the panorama of the area, including the tanks, for several minutes. Twenty or more children, some on bicycles, were present behind Shauna and the main Gaza highway. An Israeli observation drone was circling over the area. A tank fired a flashette shell, typically containing 5,000 1.5 inch metal darts. Their purpose is to kill over an area. 300 meters wide. In 2003, Israel's Supreme Court said that the IDF rules, that under IDF rules, use of flashette is restricted to areas in which the danger to innocent civilians is not actual. The Israeli army said it only fired one flashette shell, followed by a shell of a different type that destroyed the Reuters car. So they basically just like shot directly at these people. And this, keep in mind, these weren't. There was no like adult age males even really here. These were literally chill, a crowd of children on bicycles, standing behind a Reuters cameraman. Wow. Actually, this is interesting going back and reading this because Reuters eventually they give like an official response. So after this, it says, here's what the army report says that the decision to kill Shana was sound because it was reasonable for the tank crew and superiors with whom they consulted by radio to assume Shana was hostile on the following grounds. Three Israeli soldiers had been killed in Gaza that day. An Israeli tank had been damaged by a rocket-propelled grenade earlier that day. Shana put a, quote, black object on a tripod pointing at the tank. Shana and Abu Mazied were wearing body armor, which we said was a practice Common to Palestinian terrorists, there were, quote, intelligence warnings, which he did not specify. The crew was unable to determine the nature of the object mounted on the tripod and positively identify it as an anti tank missile, a mortar, or a television camera. I mean, that is absolutely just brazen in your face. We, we're going to fucking murder you, especially if you have brown skin. We don't give a fuck, dude we thought your camera was a fucking rocket you fucking animal fuck you i mean it's 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 absurd what they're saying here completely fucking fake completely fucking fake now what was the key takeaway tidbit that i read from you earlier or read to you earlier it was that this journalist had just filmed and was going to report on The fact that there was an Israeli airstrike that killed a bunch of kids earlier, that was why he was there. You can't do that. You got to be snuffed the fuck out if you witness a war crime like that. So guess what? You commit another war crime to take care of the, to try to erase the evidence of the first war crime. That's how fucking insane this is. Here's Reuters response. And I got to hand it to them just a little bit because my standards are so low after reading the way they responded to some of their other journalists that were killed. But it seems like the official report from the Israeli army is what really actually pissed them off because it's such in your face, callous disregard for human life. Like, yeah, we thought your dude was a terrorist. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. We don't give a fuck. He's a fucking terrorist. You might as well be a terrorist. Oh, he's filming dead Palestinian kids? Well, how do we know he's not a fucking Hamas member putting out propaganda? He might as well be. Fuck him. It's the same difference. Reuters' response. Reuters believes the soldiers did not have reasonable grounds to use lethal force without warning. It believes the army, despite assertions to the contrary, was in clear breach of its duty under international law to avoid harm to civilians. Reuters and media groups believe the army action and its apparent policy curbs media freedom by rendering it too dangerous to use a camera in the presence of Israeli troops. There you go. There you fucking go. So, I mean, in a way, I think whoever wrote this should have spelled it out much more clearly. That they're trying to send a message. Don't film here. Or, you know what? We're going to fucking fire a fucking tank shell right at your fucking head and all the kids behind you. We don't give a shit. If you film here, you better watch the fuck out. To, to imagine that there's this actual, you know, this idea that a tripod can look like a rocket propelled grenade or a mortar thing that's complete fucking bullshit maybe if you're looking through like the shittiest binoculars in the world but the army has sophisticated shit the idf has they have a drone in the air really fucked up and there's a there's a video of him being murdered from his point of view so we're almost already at an hour in length on this podcast so i think i'm probably just going to split this into two parts because the next podcast i was going to do was going to be largely about Israel and about some strange stories involving Israeli intelligence specifically, and also the Israeli army that many of you have probably already heard of, but I felt like we might as well go over some of it again and kind of re-examine it in a new light and just kind of talk about it. Um, So, I think I'm going to split this off right here, uh, and I will continue on the next episode about Israel uh, conti- or starting off that episode talking about uh, three more journalists who were murdered by the IDF. And also uh, the, probably forgotten by many of you, the flotilla raid, where at least 10 activists were murdered by the IDF on a boat trying to block the naval blockade, trying to get through the naval blockade to bring people in Gaza aid from a boat. Um, so thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, and if you are currently a subscriber to Media Roots Radio and you're listening to this on Patreon, we're extremely thankful and grateful for your support. And if you're not a subscriber already to Media Roots Radio, please consider subscribing for as little as five dollars a month uh, because you don't just you know get a shout out or a thanks to all of you at the end of the episode. Um, you actually get access to an enormous amount of exclusive content. Uh, A lot of people have thought our podcast has been off the air for the last several months when, in fact, a lot of the episodes we've done the last several months have only been on Patreon. We also have some pretty lengthy series like the Freemasonic History of the United States um, where everything past part two Uh, is only for our Patreon subscribers. And that just that series alone, part three through eight, is somewhere in the neighborhood of around 40 hours of original content. So you get access to that right off the bat. You get access to several other series and things that are exclusive to uh, our Patreon subscribers, like our series on smallpox. And also uh, some of the stuff we did about Sound of Freedom and the uh this sort of whole return of q in the form of a complete scam sex criminal uh psychopath tim ballard so thanks everybody for listening take care and uh make sure to listen to the next part massacre.